Good morning, Sycamore View. It's great to see you. I want to tell you a story this morning about a man named Nicholas von Zinzendorf. The rest of this morning, we're going to call him Nicholas. He was born in 1700 in Lower Austria. This was a selfie he took with an iPhone back when he was an adult. Uh, so we're assuming he looks something like this. I want to tell you a story about Nicholas. Uh, before I get there, I want to welcome everyone to Sycamore View today, especially the guests in the room and those who are here, maybe because of Mother's Day. We're so glad you're here. Casey Joy, thank you for what you did earlier. What you did is something I could not do from this stage. Yesterday, Casey and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary. Um, and today, she celebrates her 13th year as a mother. So uh, I love you. Thank you for all you do for me and for our boys. Uh, also, I want to recognize last night, Nolan Foreman was baptized into Christ. Nolan, are you in here somewhere? Where are you, Nolan? Show your hand. There you are. So excited for you, Nolan. And can't wait to see what God continues to do in and through you. I love you. I love your family. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream today as well. So back to Nicholas. He was born in 1700. Nicholas was born into a noble family. He was born into a family who had a lot of money, power, influence. And he was born into this line of this long lineage. So right in front of him was elite status. But something happened to Nicholas. He had a life-altering, life-changing encounter with Jesus. And he had this life-changing encounter, this experience with Jesus. And in that experience, he received a call to become a pastor one day. So he had this calling on his life to become clergy, to become a full-time minister, but his family really wasn't excited about this because his family, uh, even though they had a, a heart for the Lord and they had faith, to become a pastor was like a demotion in the family line. It's like, we have this thing set for our family. So he took his family's advice. He did not become a pastor. At the time where they were in Austria, there were a lot of fights going on between the Catholic Church and Protestants. So you had a lot of groups of Christians who at that time were being persecuted by the Catholic Church where they were. And this wasn't just like disagreements about theology. We're talking about lives are being lost. There was like severe persecution happening. Sometimes Christians throughout 2,000 years have, have done this to each other. Sometimes in the name of religion. So you had a lot of people who were Protestants who were leaving their country and they're trying to find other places, they're refugees, they're seeking asylum. And so, the, so there's a lot of this persecution going on. So Nicholas decided to do something about it. His grandmother had given him a lot of land. I'm not just talking about a few acres. I'm talking about a lot of land. So Nicholas knew that there were a lot of Protestants, a lot of groups of Christians who were struggling. So he, he uh, like one of the right corners, like a corner of his land, he allowed a lot of German-speaking Christians to move onto this land. Now, I don't want you to envision like a tent city, so he's not setting up a refugee camp. They set up a little community that grew to about 400 people. Some of you may have grown up in towns of 400 people. You know what that, is, that was like. So these people in 1722, there are a few hundred people who move on to Nicholas's land. And at first, they're excited. There's a place they can call home. There's a, a place that there's some protection. There's some security. They're, they're safe from a lot of things. But quickly, it turned toxic because you had groups of Christians who were there trying to sort out their theology and they disagreed on a lot of stuff. 
I mean, it would be like today or especially 30, maybe 50 years ago, if you took a few Church of Christ people and a few Baptist people and a few Pentecostals and a few Methodists and Catholics and you put them in some community and ask them to get along, it would be hard for them to get along. This is what it was like. So Nicholas took a leave of absence from the work he was doing with his family and decided to invest in this community. And the first thing he decided to do is he wanted to meet with every single person in this community. And he met with them to pray. It wasn't to talk them through things. It was to pray. So as he met with every single person, and maybe he did it by every every family unit. We're talking about over 100 encounters he had with people to pray. And he prayed for peace and he prayed for unity. And what he did plead for in prayer with these people was that they would be able to center themselves in the essentials of the gospel of Jesus. What a novel idea, right? And it worked. These people began to meet every day after he prayed with them. And they would pray and they would read the scriptures. And from this, they decided that they were going to form a covenant together. And this covenant became, at that time, was known as the Brother Union Compact. This was in 1727. So five years he spent praying with these people, helping them focus on the essentials of the gospel of Jesus. In 1727, they formed the Brotherly Union Compact. It is now known as the Moravian Covenant for Christian Living. You can Google it. It's a really fascinating piece, just reading through it. And these people began holding daily meetings for prayer and Bible study. And then something fascinating happened on August 13th, 1727. So the community had been together for about five years. They met together to take communion. And now it is known as the Moravian Pentecost. Because the Spirit of God fell on this community. For ten hours. They found themselves weeping before God, repenting before the Lord. They found themselves crying out to God. They found themselves laughing in the joy of the Spirit. They were crying out for unity. There was a a mission placed on these people, this church. And they came out of that, and a few things happened. One was they were awakened to know that whatever God has done for us in this day is not for us to hoard. So whatever God is doing in this community isn't for this community alone. So back in the 18th century, God awakened in these people a heart for global missions. Another thing that happened that day is God birthed a prayer movement that would go on for over 100 years, nonstop intercessory prayer that was taking place. Over 100 years, around-the-clock prayer, 100 years of it. Today, there are some prayer movements I'm aware of. There's one in Kansas City at IHOP, not the International House of Pancakes, the International House of Prayer. Since 1999, they've met for around-the-clock prayer. 20 years, around-the-clock prayer. They've never stopped. There's a prayer movement currently happening in North Dallas. It's been going on for a few years. Around-the-clock prayer. It's consistent. They don't stop. For a prayer movement in the 18th century to go for over 100 years, this couldn't be sustained by one generation. It's the kids and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren who are being drawn into this movement of God to keep this thing going. Over 100 years, they prayed. So now Nicholas, who launched this movement, cared for these people, who helped usher them into this revival, Nicholas had a heart for global missions. Nicholas became aware of the slave trade that was happening in in the, the British islands, so around the Caribbean, and he decided he wanted to do something about it. That a lot of these slaves, because of where they were, they weren't introduced to the gospel of Jesus. So they were praying, what can we do? What can we do to help people know Jesus? And what can we do about this system of slavery? 
<clears throat> so they began to pray. And here's what happened. This is crazy. Two people in their community, this Moravian community, decided that what they were going to do is they were going to sell themselves into slavery to live among the saves by becoming a slave to help, to help them know who Jesus is. Because of their effort, thousands of slaves came to know Jesus. And not just slaves, masters too. And this movement made a major impact on the lives of William Wilberforce, who played a major part in breaking down the system of slavery years ago. A major impact on William Carey, church leaders like John Wesley, and many others. And so much of this came back to one man named Nicholas, who decided he was going to meet with people and pray. If I were to ask you today, fill in the blank, prayer is, there would be a lot of ways we could fill in that blank. Prayer is maybe your center. Prayer is obedience. Prayer is peaceful. Prayer is, we get a lot of things we could fill in that blank with. What I want to talk about today is that prayer is dangerous. Prayer is dangerous because of what it can awaken within our souls and what it can awaken in the world. Prayer is dangerous because of what it can expose. Prayer is dangerous because it can confront us. Prayer is dangerous because it transforms us. Prayer is dangerous because it aligns our hearts with the, hearts of, with the heart of God. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18 this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. In Luke 18 verse 1, what we read is this. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. So, uh, if you go to that next slide, I just broke it down in bullet points because I want you to see this. That there are two things Jesus tells his parable for. Now, you usually don't get this in stories of parables throughout the Gospels. Usually there's not a parable that is told in which Jesus says, just so you know, here's why I am telling this parable. Usually he just tells a parable. It happens twice in Luke 18. There are times where I step up in front of you on a Sunday morning and I want to communicate something to you. And early on in a sermon, I may say, I'm preaching this sermon and here's what I want you to get out of it today. And there are other days I step up here and I don't feel the need to try to tell you what I'm trying to help you get. I just want to preach a sermon and hopefully by the end we get something. A lot of times Jesus tells parables and he doesn't tell people why. And sometimes he leaves people confused. But in Luke 18, it's, hey, I'm telling you a parable. And the reason why is I want you to pray always. And I don't want you to lose heart. Now, the very next verse tells us this. That in the parable, Jesus starts a parable by saying in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. How many of you have ever known that judge? Don't raise your hand. You just know in your heart if you've ever known them. In that city, there was a widow. Now, I want to stop right there because the two characters Jesus is going to talk about in this parable is a judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't really care about people. It's a job. And the other is a widow. So think about this. Jesus is going to teach people about prayer. And to teach them something about prayer... Of all the people Jesus could choose to tell a parable about to encourage people how to pray, he chooses a widow. He didn't choose a pastor or a rabbi or a religious leader or someone who had over 10 years of experience doing opening prayers and closing prayers. He didn't choose people who were part of a Bible study group or a women's prayer group. He chose, he chose to talk about a widow. Now, in my life, when I think about the people who have taught me how to pray, the large majority of people God has used to teach me how to pray have been women. I didn't grow up in a church where I heard women pray, not even in Bible class or in small groups. 
I know I grew up with a praying mother, but I don't remember hearing my mother verbally pray prayers over us until I was a young teenager. I'm sure when I was a little baby, I'm sure my mom spoke plenty of prayers over us. I just don't remember hearing my mother's voice talking to God about our children or about the world. That all changed when I became a teenager. And maybe it's because I became a teenager, my mom's prayer life increased because, because of me. But it was about the same time my mom started reading books from like Henry Blackaby about experiencing God. And my mom experienced a transformation in her own life where she began understanding that prayer is not about formulas. Prayer is about cultivating a relationship with God. And this began changing the way my mom prayed and the way she thought about how she was raising her kids. So we began hearing my mother pray so much more. And I remember hearing my mom crying out to God either for us or giving God praise and thanks. And I remember just hearing my mom having these encounters with God and thinking, whatever is going on inside of her, I want that. However my mom is connecting with God, like, I want in on this. That's the kind of spirituality I want to be a part of. And then there was this revival that began taking place in my church where there was a group of women in our church when I was in high school and a group of women who they said, we're going to be prayer warriors over the middle schoolers and high schoolers. So these women adopted us and they would come up to us in hallways sometimes and they would say, what can I pray for for you this week? And I remember Miss Liz Moore and Miss Cynthia Montana and a few others who were my prayer warriors who would, who would pray over us. And even 11 years here in the life of this church, I've experienced prayer times with some of the women in this church who have introduced me deeper to the heart of God, hearing you pray and thinking that is the kind of prayer that you hear in the book of Acts. It can like shake walls and, and move the heart of God. I'm thankful today for the mothers in, the room, in, in this room because all of us are here because of a mother. But I'm grateful that the body of Christ gets to meet this day and give thanks for the women in this room and in our lives who didn't just bring us into this world, but have helped ushered us into the heart of God. I remember a few years ago when I was in Houston preaching at a church, I had this encounter with a single mother who was raising a teenage girl and the teenage girl was going to be baptized. And the teenage girl came and said, who's going to baptize me? And the mom said she wanted to baptize her. Now, we were in a church where a woman had never been in the waters of baptism unless they were being baptized. And what they brought was an argument in which the mom said, the reason why is I was here when my daughter was born into the world, and I want to be here right there in that moment when my daughter is born into Christ. That sounds like some pretty good theology, right? Because I remember talking to my elders, and I was like, hey, here's what she said. And the elders looked at me, and they were like, that's good theology. I think we should do it. And it was this beautiful moment. And I don't want to, like, force Luke 18 into a Mother's Day sermon. But there's something about Jesus choosing a widow to help teach us what it means to pray that I hope can bless us today. And here's how the rest of this story goes. Let's begin in Luke 18, verse 1. Let's read the the first eight verses of Luke 18. Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while the judge refused. But later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. It's literally so that she will not give me a black eye. That's what it says. 
Like he's, he's afraid like this woman's going to keep coming. She's going to like sock me in the face if I don't do something about this. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to the chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And for, for the reading of the word of God, the church said, the church said, amen. There's some people who read this text in Luke 18, 1 through 8, and they interpret this systematically, and I think there's a sermon to be preached there. Where it is a sermon about somebody coming before a judge, crying out for injustices in the world to be made right. And then sometimes we come to this, this story, and we come at this as people who many of us in this room have experienced seasons of prayer where there's been darkness and there's been frustration and seasons where there have been unanswered prayers and like we don't really sense a response from God. As some people say, it's like prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and they're not going anywhere. And it's a word to us to stay persistent in prayer. Keep praying, keep going before God, even when you don't think anything is happening. There's a story about a, back in a, there was a, a conference being held and in that conference, they were processing Luke 18, one through eight together. And they were processing it both systematically about the injustices in the world and what it means to be people who do not give up in prayer. And in that room, there was an elderly black minister. And he gave a one-sentence interpretation of Luke 18, 1 through 8. And here's what he said. Until you have stood for years knocking at a locked door, your knuckles bleeding, you do not really know what prayer is. There are times I lead this church in a prayer movement and just a little prayer exercise. I do this on my own quite a bit where we put our palms down on our laps and it represents what we're laying before God, what we're letting go of. We flip our palms over palms up to receive from God because we don't need, just need prayers where we're laying things down, but we serve a God who doesn't want to hoard all of his gifts. He's quick to, to dispense. Sometimes I'll lead us in a prayer exercise where from there we may put our fingers together and in that what we're saying is a cry out to God for the unity of the church but then there's also a prayer that Jesus teaches in Luke 18 which is a fist that is not banging a table demanding for an answer but it's knocking on a door knocking on the doors of heaven pleading for God to intervene and do something I sit with people it feels like almost every week processing prayer lives and it's one of my favorite things to do. And it's not that I enter into times like that where I, I think it's my role to fix people because it's not my role to fix people. But I feel like when I'm talking with people about prayer, and especially with people who are struggling with prayer, like is anything happening when I pray? Or I've been asking for something for a long time and it doesn't seem like God is responding in any way. I do feel like one of my jobs is to help equip people, empower people, and call people to perseverance, to keep hurling our petitions and hurling our prayers against long periods of silence, even when we don't think something is happening. It's to remain faithful even when human experience seems to be all about delay and loss. And it's not to try to teach people that, hey, if you change your formula, maybe God will do something, because prayer is not about formulas. But he said, we're going to keep coming to the heart of God because we know nowhere else to turn to. I think when Jesus told this parable and he talked about this judge, I think there probably was a little chuckle that came from people in the room. That when he described this judge, here's a judge who doesn't fear God and this judge doesn't really care for people. I think everyone in the first century probably knew a judge who fit that description. 
They may have even looked at each other saying, man, that describes Judge Judy. That's Judge Mathis. I mean, that sounds just like Judge Smith or whoever. But we always have to be careful with parables and remember this because sometimes what we do is we assign characters to God. So uh, we do this with parables like the lost son and the, the lost sheep and the prodigal son. And when, so in this parable, what we can't do is like Jesus is not describing God. This judge is not a description of who God is. He's using a parable. And if anything, Jesus is saying, here's a judge who does this and God does something that is so different than that. But I do think when Jesus describes this widow and how this widow continues to come before the judge, knocking on a door, pleading her case, I think everyone in the room, old and young, male and female, would have been able to connect to that widow. And I bet most of you in this room too can too. You've been that widow before. Pleading before God for intervention, for relief, for a release. And not feeling like anything is happening. Either you've been there, you currently are there, or there will be a time in your life when you find yourself in that place. Can we be encouraged by this story Jesus tells that keep, keep going, keep persevering. One thing I love about the gospel of Luke is Luke invites us into the story of a lot of women who no other gospel writer tells us about about Elizabeth and a prophet named Anna and a widow's son who was brought back to life and women who were ill who come before Jesus with great faith and women at the cross. And this is one Jesus tells that Luke tells that Matthew, Mark, and John don't tell. A parable of Jesus talking about a widow who's coming before this judge, persistent and asking for what it is she wants. So when we experience times of prayer and it doesn't seem like anything is happening, does it mean God is no longer the God he says he is? Because of Jeremy Upton, a member in this church, Casey and I partake of Passover, participate in Passover almost every year. Uh, It's become a part of our annual rhythm that it's just there. Like if we miss a year of Passover, we feel like we just miss something that's so vital to, to our spiritual care. The thing, one thing about Passover is you go through a Passover meal, which may take a few hours, and, and it doesn't really change. It's the same thing every year. You know what's coming. It's one of the things that's so beautiful about Passover. For Casey and myself, we would probably tell you our favorite part of Passover is when we get to a part of dying new. Uh, we know what to expect. And it's one of those where we really look forward to this part where we get to say dying new. And it's also this part where we know this is when we're going to cry every Passover. When we get to the part of Dianu. Dianu means it is sufficient. So you get to this part of the Passover where Jeremy and others before us will read statements. And the response from us who were there is Dianu. Like it is sufficient. So Jeremy will read things like... Passover is about what God did in the Exodus and delivering people. So we'll read things like, if all God did was take us out of Egypt, that right there is sufficient. Like if all God did is part that Red Sea and took us to the other side, dying there, it's sufficient. And it just leads you through the story of God. And like if God stopped right there, God has already done enough 
that we would praise God for all he has done. That right there is enough. And even today, so like if God stopped at the cross and that was the last movement of God, it's enough. If God stopped at the resurrection of Jesus, it's enough. Die anew. And this whole phrase, die anew, reminds me of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story in Daniel chapter 3. If you don't know the story, I encourage you to go and open your Bibles, find it in your Bible, read this story. It's a story about three men who are going to die in a fiery furnace, yet God intervenes and rescues these people. And a statement they make is, we believe our God can deliver us from this fire, but even if God doesn't, we're not going to bow down to any other God. My favorite worship band is a worship band called Hillsong United. They just released a new album two weeks ago. And if you, I don't even care if you don't like, like Christian music. It's a, I want you to jump on and listen to the Hillsong United song called Another in the Fire. It's based out of this story in Daniel. Where when we go through trials in our own lives, there's another one in the fire who's going through it with us. Now there's this moment in this Hillsong United song that's not on the album. You'd have to pull up the live version on YouTube and watch it. But as they finish the song... There's two guys on the stage who begin going back and forth just singing kind of to each other. And it's not a part of the song. So if, if even if this song is made in acapella music and we start singing it, it's not like lyrics to the song. They're just kind of moved in the moment. And what they begin to sing to each other is, even if he doesn't, I'm not going to praise anyone else. Even if he doesn't, I'm going to stand right here. Even if he doesn't, I'm not changing what my confession is then my confession is and will always be to the greatness of Jesus. So let me end with this story. Erwin uh, McManus is a pastor out on the West Coast, well-known author. Myself and the Sycamore View staff and a few elders heard him speak at a conference last August. Erwin tells a story a few years ago. He had a son, uh, his, son his name was Aaron, and they sent Aaron to a church camp. And Aaron was a, was, was a younger kid. They sent him to a church camp. And Erwin said his fear was that his son would come back. And they, his son had not been to a church camp before. This was the first time going to a church camp. And he's like, man, just don't. I hope they don't stay up at late, late, late at night telling stories about ghosts and things like that. So that Aaron is afraid when he comes home. And he said something worse happened. At church camp, they spent a lot of time talking about Satan and demons. Not just about ghosts, about Satan and demons. He said, my son Aaron came home and he was so frightened by the principalities of darkness that Aaron was tempted to lie to his son and say they don't exist. And every night Aaron would go to sleep and Aaron would say, Dad, I don't leave the lights on. Will you stay in the room with me until I go to sleep? So every night Aaron would pray over his son and his prayer was God keep him safe Watch over him in this room. He would leave the lights on, would stay in the room until Aaron went to sleep. Until one night, Erwin said, I decided to do something different. And this night, Erwin told his son Aaron, he said, Aaron, tonight I am not praying for God to keep you safe. Tonight I'm praying for God to make you dangerous. So dangerous that if any power of darkness tries to come into this room, it will flee. Because of the presence and power of Jesus in you. And he said, Aaron looked back at him and said, Then daddy, pray for me to be dangerous. Very dangerous. And church, may God send you out of this room today to be dangerous. 
to pray like you've never prayed before, believing that when we pray, something happens. May God send you out of this room today believing that the same power that God used to lift Jesus out of a grave is in you, not just to bring you to life after you die, but to bring you to life right now while you live. And that this same power is at work in you to bring other people to life everywhere we go. So this week at Sycamore View, may we live dangerously. Not that we become a threat to the world, but we insert love. We're in anywhere in the world where there is hatred. That we send the Spirit of God, that we are sent by the Spirit of God to be this light that penetrates the entire world, that begins right where we live. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, surround this room to receive people for prayer in this moment. And if there's anything we can do for you, you see where we have leaders going around this room right now to receive you. If there's anything we can do for you, whether it's someone here who wants to be baptized into Christ and to surrender to Jesus and make a confession publicly in this room today, we have leaders in the front to receive you. And if there's anything else we can be for you, this is a moment that we offer ourselves. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.